Today's a very special day because today we get to talk about fire and brimstone, finally. I know that's something everybody has been just pining for. And we finally get there today. Now, fire and brimstone has kind of fallen on hard times. Have you noticed? When I was growing up, it was pretty ubiquitous in sermons. And perhaps you remember the movie Pollyanna. Pollyanna was about a girl who had missionary parents that taught her the happy verses in the Bible and to just look at everything as this is an opportunity to trust God. It's really a great story. And she impacts this pastor who is a fire and brimstone preacher. And in his sermon that he makes in the movie, he begins it with the following line. Death comes swiftly. His hair's, you know, falling down in his face. And this big menacing expression. And the people in the pews are kind of getting sick at their stomach. And they're there out of obligation, basically, but they hate Sunday mornings is part of, the, part of the story. Well, you know, I think one of the reasons why fire and brimstone has fallen on hard times in our, in our day and time is because the narrative has changed in, in our culture. And I think it's changed for very explainable reasons. If you grew up in the early 20th century before antibiotics were invented and before C-sections became a normal procedure, you faced death all the time. Death actually did come swiftly. I'm looking at a daughter-in-law here who would be dead if it wasn't for modern medicine. You're listening to a speaker who would be dead if not for penicillin. We would have at least one child with an amputation because of infection if it was not for modern medicine. But we, we now pray for you know, children who are 28 weeks to be okay because they're being delivered by C-section and put in NICU. And we've sort of conquered death to an extent. Now, there's still death, but it's much rarer today than it was. So the question, the narrative of what happens to me when I die, which was a very appropriate question that's in your face all the time in the early 20th century, is not really a pressing question in our society. The pressing question in our society, as, as offered by the world, is really more like, how am I going to keep my life from getting to be of low quality as I grow really, 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 really old? And then the definition of really, 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 really old changes every decade. So when you're in high school, really, really, really old is 30. <laughs> and then really, really, really old is 40. And then it just keeps bumping out until finally you say, I'm really, really, really old. We don't talk much about death anymore. But given the time that we have on earth, it's just as appropriate a question. And the fact that we haven't talked about it as much doesn't mean it's not still an important topic. Now the other thing that happened to fire and brimstone, I think, is that the teaching was inappropriately addressed. What the Bible says about fire and brimstone, I think, was compressed and condensed into a story that's really not biblical. You take those two things together, and it's just kind of fallen out of favor. So what I hope to do today is talk about fire and brimstone and the way that the Bible talks about it. Now, I have a very, very 
strong and uh, urgent approach to this. And I want to start in Revelation 22.18, just so you'll know where I'm coming from. So I'm going to be very careful as I go through this fire and brimstone message here. 22.18, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy, that's Revelation, of this book, If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. So, I am very motivated not to add anything. So I'm going to do my very best to just talk about what's here. I'm also very motivated not to take anything away. So I want to really talk about what's here. And what's here may not fit the narrative you grew up with because we kind of got things oversimplified when we were growing up, I would would assert. Now, I'm an investor by trade, and part of what I do is study investment psychology, which is basically decision-making. And one of the things that has come to be understood is that when people face information, what they automatically do is invent a story to explain the information. That's just what we do. It's just kind of how we're built. And it takes discipline to actually look at the information as it is and construct a story from the information rather than inventing a story that you want to be the answer to explain away the information. So what we're going to do today is we're going to approach this like investors and we're going to look at the information. And we have ample reason to do that because we don't want the plagues of this book and we do want to participate in the Holy City. So what I'm going to do here is we're in Revelation 20, and I'm just going to read 4 through the rest of the chapter first, and then we'll just talk about it. This particular chapter is pretty comprehensive about what it talks about, so we're going to need to talk about it kind of all at once in many respects. So bear with me, please, while I read this passage. So 20 verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and of the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil, who deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth And the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There was a lot of stuff in this, isn't there? Well, last week we did chapter 20, verse 4 and 5. Two weeks ago, sorry, last time. We did 4 and 5. And we saw the thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. They saw the souls that had been wet, beheaded for the witness of Jesus. So in this passage, it just talks about those who are beheaded, those who lost their lives in the tribulation as being the ones set on the thrones. And what we postulated is that since the twelve apostles were told, you shall sit on twelve thrones judging the tribes of Israel, And since Jesus tells us in chapter 3, verse 17, I think it is, to him who overcomes, I will give to him to sit with me on my throne, it seems reasonable to presume that the witnesses here will be joined by these other groups of people reigning in the millennial kingdom. But you see in verse 5, the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were teleo, were finished were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. So while this passage here is not comprehensive, and we know from other passages that there's more to it than just this, there's an emphasis here. And the emphasis, I think, is pretty clear. And that is... Who's going to reign and who isn't? Now remember, the word throne shows up 41 times in Revelation. And in verse 11, there it is again. We started this whole thing in the throne room. And then we saw all these plagues and everything that were dispersed on the earth that were authorized from the throne room. And we kept going back to the throne room. And now the entire earth flees from the face of Jesus. So there is old heaven and earth is done away with. There's going to be a new heaven and earth we'll talk about in chapter 21. And the centerpiece is the great white throne. So we still have the throne. Even, even after everything's done, this throne is still there. God is still on it. So the overriding question is, who is going to reign with Jesus? And the answer is, those who were faithful witnesses. By application, the rest of the revelation, it is those who were overcomers. Because remember, Jesus said, to those who overcome as I overcame. And what did Jesus overcome? Temptation. He was tempted in every way as we are. Philippians 2. He learned obedience, even to death on a cross. Even though he was in heaven and was king of the universe, he did not hoard that. He did not say, this is all I need. When the father said, would you go and do something else for me? He didn't say, wait a minute, I'm retired. Wait a minute, I've already done my part. I'm already the king of the universe. Why would I want to go do that? He said, I'll do it. And he lowered himself to become a man and served and was a faithful witness and didn't fear death. And even though... He didn't want death. He faced it down. 
And because of that, Philippians 2 said, his name was elevated above every name. Well, he was already elevated above every name as God. But now he's elevated as a human. So now he's the top human on top of being the top God. And the beginning of that passage says, have this mind in you which was also in Christ. Who didn't take the position you have and say, well, how can I keep this getting more and more comfortable all the time? Or, or how, can I, how can I keep elevating my fame or whatever it is that you know, is interesting to you? But rather say, how can I make this available as a steward? What do you want me to do, God? How do you want me to put this at risk for your kingdom? How do you want me to be a faithful witness and not fear death? I'll go where you want me to go. That's who's going to reign. And look at verse 6 because something else is going to be added. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and reign with Him for a thousand years. Isn't that interesting? It's not just kings. It's priests. Does that ring a bell? King, priest? Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. You recall in Hebrews that Jesus is the superior priest and the superior king. And Jesus is the one that paves the way as a new priest according to the order of Melchizedek, who's both the king of peace as well as a priest unto God to whom Abraham tithed. Remember that? And so he's the model king-priest. And we are called to follow in those footsteps. And in Hebrews 12, verse 14, it says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator, porneo, or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Well, there's a consequence to not exercising the gifts we're given. We have the grace of God. It's given to us. It's a gift. Can't be taken away. We are God's children. That's irreversible. But what we do with that gift has incredible consequences. Amazing consequences. And what seems to be the case is that there's going to be large swaths of people, like Esau, who in this life say, you know, what good does it do me to suffer now for what seems nothing later. What good is it? Why don't I just seek as much comfort now as possible and then I'll just trust God's grace later? Well, they're going to be like Esau who realizes, I sold my birthright. You know, what was a birthright? It was not a physical inheritance that he gave up. It was the inheritance to be the reigner to sit on the throne of his family, to be the one who got the double blessing, which is, I'm now the CEO of the family. That's what he didn't care about. All that responsibility, who cares about that? I'm hungry, I want a bowl of soup. So I feed my appetite now, and I'm unwilling to serve 
this path. I'm, I'm unwilling to walk this path of obedience. I'm unwilling because I'm hungry. I need my appetite satisfied. And then later you look back and said, uh-oh, that was a really bad idea. I want to reverse it. It's too late. Too late to reverse the consequences of the actions we, t- we take sometimes. Sometimes God lets us reverse those things. Sometimes he doesn't. So it really matters. And some people will be priests and kings, and some will not. Now, it seems confusing to us because of the way we tend to think about things. Because it says this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Now, this is hard because the second death, very clearly, is the lake of fire. And we can see that in verse 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So if all believers are children, some are overcomers, some are not. Some are priests and kings and reign with Christ, and some don't. And the ones who reign are in the first resurrection. All seems to be fairly clear here then what is this power that the second death has over those who aren't in the first resurrection? And how can the lake of fire hurt someone who is God's child? How does that work? So it's very uncomfortable turf. We don't like the idea that there is this severe of a consequence for not overcoming. And what in the world is that consequence? It sounds terrible. Let's look at what we can see. Let's don't speculate about anything else other than what we can see for the reason aforementioned. (laughs) Let's don't add anything. Let's don't take anything away. Let's first talk about death and Hades. We are used to thinking about hell as a place. And we tend to take the lake of fire and Hades and make them the same thing. But they're not. Look here. Verse 14, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. You can't cast Hades into Hades. They've got to be two different things. So while Hades is clearly a place, the lake of fire is something else. It's not Hades. Okay, so that's, that's an important distinction. Let's just talk about Hades for a minute. There are multiple instances of Hades in the Bible. Depending on your translation, it may say Hades, it may say hell. Well, let's just look at them all. This is an important topic. Matthew 11, 23. Capernaum will be brought down to Hades for not being enthusiastic enough about Jesus. So there's a town going to Hades. Let's look at Acts 2.31. In Acts 2.31 it says, He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And this is Peter speaking about Jesus' resurrection, and he's quoting a psalm. And in that psalm, if we went back and looked at it, you would see the word Sheol. You shall not leave my soul in Sheol, my life in Sheol. So in the New Testament, the word Hades is substituted for the word Sheol. 
And Sheol in the Old Testament, if you go look at it, seems to encompass death, graves, pits, and the place you go when you die. So that is really fascinating because Hades was a very well-developed Greek concept of a place. And it was a place where you could go. It had two compartments. And it had a personification as well. And we saw the personification of Hades and the personification of death riding out on the horses from the throne room, right? So pretty well developed. And we saw that picture in Luke 16, verse 23. And being in torments in Hades, this is the rich man, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So there you are. There's two compartments. You can see across them. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus. He may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and you're tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. So we can apparently talk across this gulf, but we can't go and actually travel across the gulf. Well, that's very Hades-like. And that's something that Jesus used as a parable. In Matthew 16, 18... The gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. You think about it as a gate of a walled city has an invasion taking place. The invasion is the church. And the church will prevail and invade Hades. It's a pretty cool concept. And we know death and Hades are kind of like peas in a pod. They, They rode out together. They're thrown into the lake of fire together. The last enemy that's defeated is who? Death. Death and Hades. We're going to win against death and Hades. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Death, where's your victory? Hades, where's your victory? In Revelation 1.18, we saw that Jesus has the keys of Hades. It's a place with a door, a gate. And a gate has a key. And Jesus has that key. In Revelation 6.8, we saw death and Hades. Thanatos and Hades commissioned to go forth as the first horse, the pale horse of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then we have these verses in Revelation 20. That's all the instances of Hades in the New Testament. It's a place. It's a place with two compartments. But it gets thrown into the lake of fire, just like earth burns up. And the heavens we know now burn up. So does Hades. And something else takes its place. The lake of fire. Well, what is the lake of fire? Is it a place? It could be. The bottomless pit is a place. And we saw Satan thrown in there for a thousand years. When the bad angel was given the key to the bottomless pit and went and opened it up and the locust things came out, smoke came out of the bottomless pit. So maybe there's fire in there. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Maybe. maybe, I don't know. Doesn't tell us specifically, just says smoke. Uh, So it could be a place. But we're not told it's a place. Let's look at what we are told about the lake of fire. This fire is the word, Greek word pyre, P-Y-R. I guess we get our word pyrotechnic or pyromaniac from it, which is every male as far as I know is a pyromaniac, (laughs) at least when they're young. So let's just look at some verses about fire. God is a consuming fire. Now it doesn't say God uses consuming fire. 
It doesn't say God turns into a consuming fire. It doesn't say God sends consuming fire. It says God is a consuming fire. That's in Hebrews 12, 29. And it's quoting Deuteronomy. So it shows up two times, two different places in Deuteronomy. We saw in Daniel 7 that there was a beast who was killed. Isn't necessarily the same beast as the beast who's thrown directly into the lake of fire that we've seen previously. But it sounds similar. I would say it's more likely than not to be the same beast. And he's killed with fire from the throne, from the throne of God. In Revelation 20.11, look at this thing here. It's, uh, I, I don't know what stunning, I guess, would be the word. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. Now you tell me, what's going to destroy the heaven and the earth that we have now? What's going to destroy it? Fire. What's the promise? No more will water ever destroy the earth. Never will water destroy the earth again. Next time with fire. And here we have fire destroying the heaven and the earth. And where's it coming from? In verse 11. Jesus' face. That's our Jesus. Just think about that for a minute. I mean, as you dwell on it, doesn't it kind of make sense? Who made all this? Who is sustaining it according to Colossians 1? If he wasn't holding it together, what would happen? It would just blow apart. So doesn't it make sense that when he says it's time for something new, that just from his face the fire comes and it's just all gone? What else do we have about fire? It's an interesting thing here about Sheol. That's Hades, which is indirectly related to fire. Let's turn to this one. Psalm 139, verse 8. Now this is really interesting. Psalm 139, verse 8. If I ascend into heaven, you are there. Who else do we know is in heaven right now? He'll get thrown out at some point. Remember he gets evicted? Satan. Yeah, Satan's in heaven right now. So heaven is not just a place where only certain people get to be at this point in time. It's a place where God's will is done. Right? We know that from the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we saw that in Job, didn't we? When Satan shows up and God says, Hey, where you been? And they have this, this interaction, this trash talk that they do back and forth. God authorizes, you can go do this to Job because everything that happens is authorized. It's a theme. Revelation is what happens at the end. It's the same basic idea. If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, Hades, Sheol, Behold, you are there. We tend to think that hell is a place that God isn't. But does it make sense for God to make a place that's independent of Him? All things are dependent on God. Nothing exists apart from God. And He's everywhere except where? No, He's everywhere. He's in heaven. He's in Hades. Isn't that interesting? Now, you say, well, there's two compartments in Hades. Well, yeah, but didn't say, it didn't say he's just in part of Hades. So, we see God's everywhere. Look at Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. So, where is he? Our favorite place, right? 
He's in the throne room again. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. Two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Here's the prophet Isaiah. And when he's faced with Jesus, who's face causes the heaven and the earth to flee away. He says something quite reasonable. I have unclean lips. And how does God cure the unclean lips? Verse 6, Then a seraphim flew to me and had in his hand a live coal. So here you are, my son, my beloved son who I have special interest in. I have such special interest in you, I'm giving you one of the greatest commissions that could ever be given to a human. I'm going to have you speak my words. And here's how I'm going to prepare you to speak my words. I want you to take this burning ember and burn your face off with it. Just stick it on your lips and singe them, cauterize them, and then we'll be ready to go. Well, do you have another job in mind? Maybe. I'm kind of, my resume doesn't fit that too good. Well, Does that just apply to just a prophet? Well, it gets more and more unfortunate all the time. Look at 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. This word, fiery trial, the root word is pyre. Same word as lake of fire. So, God is giving us an amazing opportunity by giving us a coal to stick on our lips. By subjecting us to fire in our lives now, in this earth. We get the wonderful opportunity to walk through the fire. Or we can avoid it. We can say, no, not me. I don't want that. Make it go away. But what he's exhorting here is, no, no, no. When these really bad trials have come to you, when these really bad trials, this fire comes, when you see the fire, it's wonderful because it's allowing you to learn the same things Jesus learned, who through obedience did the will of God. And learned obedience, even to death on the cross. He was a faithful witness and didn't fear death. See how this just keeps rolling and rolling and rolling through this book? And because of that, his name was elevated above every name. And he is now on the throne of the world. Not just the universe, but the world as a man. But you know what he wants? Unlike Satan as a dictator, who does, how, many, how many people does Satan want on the throne? One. Right? It wasn't good enough for him that God put him over the world. That wasn't good enough. Because God was still above him. He wanted God's spot. And he wanted to be the only one on the top. Well, just the opposite of that, as you would expect. Jesus says, you know, I won this chair. I won this seat. I won this amazing throne. And what I want is I want to share it with everyone who's willing to embrace the sufferings that I embrace. It's mind-boggling. It's unimaginable. This is the guy whose face causes the earth to melt 
and the universe to melt. And he says, I'm going to bring all things to culmination. I'm going to rule and I want you to share it with me. But you've got to learn what I learned. And the only way you can do that is in this life because you can learn it by faith. That's it. And it's your opportunity. Whoa, man, it just makes us think a different way about fire. We know nothing can separate us from the love of God. So how can the second death have power over someone that doesn't go through the first resurrection but is still a believer? Well, let's look at Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, it's talking about how we can know that we're a child of God. It's really simple. What do you have to do to be a child of God? Believe. How much do you have to believe? Enough to look. As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that all who believe will have everlasting life. All I had to do is look. It's not that hard. Jesus said, look, if you don't believe my words, just at least believe what my miracles. That's good enough. It doesn't take much. This is not that hard. Just believe. Well, how can I know I believe? Well, verse 15 of Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So, the Spirit tells us. If you have this inner voice that says, I'm your Father, then God's your Father. That's not something that comes and goes. If you've had it, you're in. You're, you're a child of God. Nobody can ever take it away from you. Well, does that mean, okay, good. Then we can go out and just do whatever we want to. Yes, it actually does mean that. But does it mean we can go out and do whatever we want to and there's no consequences? No. No, it doesn't mean that. Which is what the book of Romans is about. So verse 16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. We are children of God. He'll, he'll let you know. And if He lets you know, you don't ever have to doubt it. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. You know what? We inherit God as an inheritance no matter how bad we are. No matter whether we miss the first resurrection, no matter whether we, we are sharing the throne of God, no matter whether we're kings and priests, no matter whether we're overcomers, this is an unconditional statement. We're heirs of God. It's a wonderful starting place. You know, generally speaking in this world, if you don't give belonging to your children, they will go seek it from somewhere. And likely a pretty destructive spot because places like cults know how to prey on people that need belonging and they give it to them conditionally. Which people are generally happy to have because then it gives them some semblance that they control their belonging, which is a very fundamental need. But God doesn't do it that way. He just gives us belonging. You belong. It's unconditional. Okay, well now what? We're heirs of God. But joint heirs with Christ if. Well, if is conditional, isn't it? You either do or you don't. See, we have God as an heir no matter what. He's our Father. That's, that's not up for debate. But if we want the birthright, we can't be like Esau. See, Esau was his father's son no matter what. And his father so desperately wanted to bless him. Didn't he? Remember that? He loved Esau. That never stopped. But the consequences were the consequences. Joint heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with Him. Do not consider it confusing things when you have fire in your life, when you have fiery trials. It's a fantastic opportunity to learn the sufferings of Christ that we may be glorified together with Him and share His throne. The guy who's from faith, you know, his face melts the universe, wants to say, Dan, 
Come sit with me. Isn't that stunning? It's not automatic. This isn't a participation trophy kind of thing. There's winners and losers. Fire. Our God is a consuming fire. He uses fire. Well, so then, what is this? What, what does that look like? If it's, if it's not a place, it could be a place. It doesn't tell us it is or it isn't. <clears throat> We're just reacting to what, what we can see, right? But what could it be based on what we see? There is a really fascinating verse in Ezekiel 28. And it, God pronounces disaster upon Satan and he'll be brought low. So let's just look at what Satan's life is going to be like in the lake of fire. And then we'll pick this back up next time. Ezekiel 28, verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created, and you were anointed cherub who covers. Who are we talking about? Yeah, no question about it. Actually, he's Lucifer at this point. He didn't get the Satan the accuser title till later. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. I just got to pause and say, the gems used to be alive and kind of out with us where we could see them and wear them. You know, I think that's going to happen again. <laughs> Ladies, your jewel, your jewel closet is going to take on a new meaning. <laughs> Until iniquity was found in you, verse 16, by the abundance of your trading you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitudes of your iniquities. Therefore I brought fire from your midst. I devoured you and turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the people are astonished at you. You've become a horror and shall be forevermore. And there's another verse, Isaiah 14, 12 through 17, that's the same sort of thing. Just read it real quick. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble? who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of its prisoners. Is this the man? So, when Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, it seems as though people will be able to walk by and say, look at, look at who that is. Is that, that, is that beggar over there under that bridge holding up that cardboard sign? Is that, is that Satan, really? Do you, you, you know what he used to do? You know who he used to be? You won't believe. 
You know, have you seen those those uh, documentaries on like the guy who was the Super Bowl champion and now he's on Skid Row and sold his Super Bowl ring for drug money? And now he's on TV? That's what it sounds like. Satan's going to be. So ponder this, and we'll talk about it next time. One possibility is the lake of fire is the face of Jesus. And in that face is going to have to sit somebody like Satan, who in that presence is brought so low, people are going to walk by and see and say, Man, oh man, could you have a fall bigger than that? Now, if you were Satan, which would you rather have, that or being in solitary confinement the rest of your life? When you think of it that way, it might be the worst possible thing, huh? The guy who wants to be over all is now under all. Again, don't want to add anything. I'm not adding anything. I'm just, think, I'm just giving you things to think about. God, I'm, not, I'm trying not to add anything. Please be merciful on me. God, thank you for this amazing message you've given us. And inspire us, Lord, to this unbelievable opportunity you've given us to embrace the fiery trials that come into our life and have ourselves cleansed in this life that we may be glorified with you in the life that is to come. In Jesus' name, amen.